Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio, and we're always talking about farming things. Today, we're talking about farming and fiber things with a wonderful dear lady named Rebecca Burgess, who lives in Marin County, California. Hello, Rebecca. Hi, Severin. I hope you're doing very fine today. I am doing very fine. I'm in your bioregion, and hope I get to see you soon. Oh, I hope so, too. Where are you today? Um, I'm sitting on an old cow pasture that got turned into nature habitat right here in Point Reyes, California. Wow. Nice. Here's a good reception. And so let's do a little introduction about the Fiber Shed Project, which has unfurled and unspooled and woven itself across a whole landscape of functions. Maybe you could just start from the very beginning and give us a brief sketch of how you came to the position of covering so much territory with your work. Well, it started personally, as um, most things do that have heart behind them. I was committed to to doing something different in the way that I was dressing myself. I wanted to explore how I could work with my my local community in terms of my farming community um, and my wildlands community. I, I use a lot of, um, I, my background is as a natural dyer, um, using wild and weedy and semi-cultivated species. Um, and so I used my skills as a natural dyer and a weaver. And working with local farmers, I um, built out a wardrobe that I would wear for a year that included alpaca and cashmere and lots of different sheep varieties and even some local cotton. And um, all of that was spun and um, cleaned and spun and woven or knit, dyed, cut and sewn and worn by me. And um, I talked about it on a blog and I, I wrote about it and I, I made sure that I let people know what I was doing. And that particular one-year effort transpired and, and inspired people uh, to to do the same. A lot of initial requests were people emailing me. Um, we have like 12,000 people in the first few weeks um, who started reading the blog. I don't really know how that occurred, but people spread information about the story. And then I started to get a lot of people wanting to do this for themselves. And I think what people realized is that in their own communities, whether it was, um, you know, Brookfield, Vermont, or if it was um, Asheville, North Carolina, even places that have a craftsman, craftswoman heritage um, in the modern era, trying to find people who have the skills to work with local fiber, um, you know, is still a, a challenge in some places um, because we really have lost a lot of our textile skills uh, from the landscape. And so 
Fibershed really became a response to people's challenge trying to dress locally. It was like, gosh, you know, here I was able to do this for myself, but I'd like to make this accessible to everyone. And there's so many requests. So how do I help people meet their needs to dress local and to work with local farms to create clothing? So now we've created an affiliate program, and there's people all over the country and world who are who are modeling um, some basic principles, which are you know community skill building, taking people who do have skills and making sure they get out into the community and teach younger people those skills. And I'm talking everything from how to harvest dye plant seeds, um, how to you know breed for fiber on your sheep if you have a dual purpose sheep. Um, all the way through to how to hand spin and blend fibers and how to knit, how to weave, um, how to pattern draft, and um, how to cut and sew. So skill building, economic development is something we really try to support people with. Um, we build feasibility studies for how you can bring a mill to your town. And in our region, we have uh, two new mills propping up soon. Uh, one's already on the ground, one's emergent. Um, and we also um, community build, which means we have symposiums <laughs> where we all get together and create, you know, those basically those leading thoughts that are going to carry us forward ideologically on how to create a regenerative fiber system. So between convenings, uh, feasibility studies, and actual on-the-ground farming and sharing skills, we're building a fiber system. And we're modeling it here, and it seems to be replicating. And um, it's so far, I think people just have been inspired in their own way. So while we do it here, we, we're inspired by other people who've done it in their own way. So I guess I hope that answers your question. Yep, yep. Um, I'm inspired um, by your own way. And I, I was especially inspired because I got to see the plants um, that are growing in your garden of indigo and not... And, you know, I go around the world and I talk to a lot of people who grow plants and I, sometimes we talk about plants and I tell them about indigo that grows in Northern California and people sometimes don't believe me. So <laughs> I just want to get it really on the record. Tell us about the indigo plant, please. I can understand why people don't believe you. I had a hard time believing it was possible myself because um, I spent a lot of time in places in the world where they grow uh, tropical indigo, indigofera tinctorium. And that's Indian, Indian, Indonesian, Guatemalan, Oaxacan, indigo. You know, it's pretty much all this one variety that, or a variation or cultivar that doesn't grow in temperate climates. So a lot of people associate indigo with tropical climates. But in Japan, uh, in the northern regions, they have uh, built a process for farming and processing something called polygonum tinctorium. And it's in the buckwheat family, and it's a temperate climate source of blue. And you can grow, and you can grow woad as well, like they do in the UK and um, and um, other areas in Europe and France. They have a beautiful woad farm and near the Pyrenees, but it doesn't have a high content of blue in comparison to this Japanese indigo. So for a few years, I did some seed selection, and I finally kind of honed in on on this, uh, this beautiful plant. And, it, and there was a, actually a teacher here in North America at, um, I think it's University of Indiana, Roland Ricketts. He is married to a Japanese 
uh, weaver whose family is very well versed in indigo, and he had a lot of background data on how to process this, and he also had seeds himself. So he's growing uh, this plant at the University of Indiana, but here in California we have the first commercial operation in the country, and we are, it's just, it's totally doing great. Um, we have grown, I think last year we grew around 9,000 plants, and we were able to process enough indigo to dye around 400 pounds of material, and every year we're going to just grow a little bit more. I'm not sure with the drought how things are going to go, but I, yeah, it's hard for people to believe that there are temperate climate sources of blue, and they actually do quite well. Um, Jap this Japanese indigo, we've, we've spread the seeds all over the country. This year we sold about 400 pounds of seed. <laughs> um, people are just going crazy wanting to grow this in their gardens and, and farms, and it's very popular now. Well, I, I think it's an important lesson, you know. Sometimes you don't even know what you don't even know, and you, you know you want something, and you want this blue that's so intoxicating, and you're just going to have to figure out which small man in Japan knows the answer. Okay, moving forward. <laughs> um, I want to know more about these mills and some of the improvisational connections that you've had to make as a, as a community organizer totally driven by major, big, um, multidimensional things. Um, just help us understand what kinds of relationships you're having to build in order to bring this puppy to fruition. What does it take to raise a mill in California today? Well, I think the story is still unfolding, but at the moment, what it took was a commitment to working with existing infrastructure. So that was my starting point. What's already here, and let's map what's already here. And we mapped two things. We mapped the fiber supply, which is where, where is the wool and what quality is it, and then we also mapped where are the mills uh, that are already here, if there are any, and what are they producing. So once you know the lay of the landscape and you know what is possible and what's already in existence, then you have an understanding of what is missing and what needs to be fulfilled. So that was our starting point was let's map California's wool supply. So we mapped 3.1 million pounds of wool in California and we qualitatively analyzed it. So collaborators for that were resource conservation districts. Um, uh, the California Wool Growers Association helped us. Uh, Roswell Wool, actually the commodity market, helped us a lot. Um, the growers, we went to a lot of farms. And we also worked with eight interns from the Agricultural Sustainability Institute at UC Davis. And they made a lot of phone calls to farmers for us, too. And I did. We were, I mean, I was pretty much in the car or on the phone for six months trying to get little samples of wool from every farm <laughs> that I could. And we sent it off to a guy who'd worked for the USDA for 37 years. His name is Ron Cole. And he um, put all the wool under his microscope, and he gave us a micron test. So basically, we found out what the quality was of the wool in California, <clears throat> and there was this huge surprise. Um, most of our collaborators up to that point had been small fiber farmers who were hobbyists primarily. Maybe some of them had fiber farming as their sole business, but very few. And they kind of just said, you know, the wool in California sucks. 
you're never going to be able to make anything out of that. But no one had actually figured out what the wool was to even say that it sucked. And so <clears throat> we finally figured out that actually it's most of it, like two-thirds of it, is under 23 microns. And what that means to the layperson is that you can wear it as a sweater. <laughs> you can even wear some of it next to your skin, and it's not going to scratch you. Um, so collaborators up to that point had been, you know, just farmers, governmental agencies, students, and even the commodity market. And then past that, some of the collaborators to pay for this research were people like Rudolf Steiner Foundation and the 11th Hour Project and uh, the Clara Fund, different groups who have a philanthropic arm, but they also have something called a public-related investment arm. And they're really interested in helping local economic initiatives. And before you start building any mill on the ground, you really have to know if it's going to survive. And so feasibility studies are really important. Because if you just build a business plan without even assessing the conditions for that business, um, you know, you could get yourself into in over your head pretty quick. So those PRI groups are interested in helping, you know, see if it, the mill is even feasible. So we, we know that the wool supply is good, and we also know that um, you can process this wool. We built a technical roadmap and renewable energy and water recycling. And we got an engineer from France to work with us and an engineer from South Carolina, and um, <clears throat> we figured out that we could make cloth. But then when we priced it all out, we realized that this mill is going to cost like, you know, $26 million. And, and the climate for the consumer right now is that we as people who buy things and wear things, people aren't, they're still not really purchasing clothing for very much money. They want things either secondhand, which is great, we support secondhand markets, or they want things that are fast fashion and very cheap. And there's a few people in between who are buying artisanal quality goods. So we actually found that while we could build this thing, our main linchpin was that people need to demand that they even want 100% natural fiber, locally grown garment. And until we have a demand, we actually can't put this mill on the ground. So one of the collaborators I'm waiting for is you and everyone else <laughs> to say, I want this. And there's ways of saying you want this. And it's like you have to start talking to some of the people who you buy clothing from. And you have to say, well, where's your American-made label? Or where do you get your wool from? REI or Patagonia or North Face or Ibex? Like, where's, where's the material coming from? So as consumers start to make demands, I think we'll have enough of a demand analysis to put this mill on the ground. But as of yet, we still need, we still need to prove that. And that takes us. And that's where the responsibility lands on the people, surprisingly. <laughs> so there's the where we are now, and there's the where we can go. And I'm totally on board with nagging everyone and, or triggering their imagination of the potential for a local lamb wool going into my new sweater. Uh, but here's another question. What is the potential for this to grow? I mean, I remember always talking to Adam Gashka, and he says how Mendocino County used to have 300,000 sheep on it, and that, you know, so much of California really, especially in drought conditions, shouldn't be in this really aggressive row crop, naked soil, 
carbon leaking into the atmosphere, soil running off into the streams, and that there's potentially really positive uh, implications of moving more land into pasture land and lamb land. I mean, um, wool, sweater land. Mm, yes, I would agree with you. I, the the stocking rate that we were looking at was around seven seven sheep per acre in California coastal lands, and I think that was the same for Sierra, the Sierra foothills too. And and yes, pasture systems stocked well, not overstocked, but stocked appropriately for the regenerative capacity of the grasses is, as you know, and I don't know if you've had these folks on the radio show before, but we all are hearing about the ability for for rangelands to sequester carbon, and we also know that tilling soil, when you lose carbon, you also lose water-holding capacity. So we know that pasture lands that are treated well and are, you know, anything from even applying compost onto your pasture or strategically grazing your animals through it, you can increase your water holding capacity. And so then you're taking the pressure off of your water supply for irrigation when you can just treat your soil as your reservoir. And if your soil is your reservoir, which it can be in the case of pastured systems, and and tillage can, can get there, too, if you're really careful and you only till maybe once and then you use additive farming in subsequent years with compost. But basically, the pasture system is, um, is healthy. And thus, yes, more sheep um, could be on the California landscape if lands went into transition out of the more industrial cropping process into pasture systems. We could see sheep. They're also good for California hillsides. Um, they're lighter weight. And a lot of farmers in the north have told me they're transitioning out of cattle and into sheep, and they're saying that it's better. They're seeing less erosion on their hillsides, and they say that their stocking rate is their stocking rate is pretty equivalent if you take the weight of the cow and the weight of the sheep. And so I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So we're all thinking ahead about where we're going to find ourselves, how to tune into the logic of the landscape, and find opportunities in the sweet spot in the sweet spots. Um, places where we can make a living, places where we can find um, a, a shifting point, an intervention point for sustainable ag to gain a foothold on more and more of our most magnificent land here. And you're hearing this from the grassroots first. You probably won't hear this from the mainstream media, um, who unfortunately are singing a song that is not always compatible with the reality on the ground and the climate that is changing every day today, this morning, and even was hailing. But uh, thinking ahead is a good move, and I really thank you, Rebecca, for thinking ahead. I want you to think if you have any announcements while I make mine. Um, we just released a movie on pasture, on sheep, on grazing sheep underneath vineyards as an innovative strategy employed by shepherds in the peri-urban areas around Virginia and around Mendocino, who, of course, are struggling with the unreasonable price of land and have found a solution in partnering with uh, landowners who have invested in wine grapes and who have luscious grass underneath that can be munched by the lambs. So check it out on ourland.tv. And, Rebecca, do you have any announcements? Uh, at the moment, um, 
I guess it's it's not an invitation necessarily necessarily to watch anything or um, uh, come to a class yet, but we are working on. Um, I just wanted to let folks know that Fibershed is working on an industrial hemp project in Colorado and Kentucky because um, we really want to show that people we we are going to need to blend our wool with another fiber, and we're looking at really biomass dense crops. And so my announcement is that um, you know support industrial hemp research in your community. There's a few states that actually have a waiver that can allow them to grow industrial hemp. And we're really looking forward to um, textile blending with cellulose and protein fiber, so lammies and tall stalks of hemp. And we know that we can get about 12 tons of biomass per acre off of hemp, and we can get about 70 pounds of wool per acre. So we're definitely going to need to dress people with more than one fiber. And we see blending these two as a great option. And so I would say just keep abreast of the, this research. And um, we're going to need people out in Kentucky uh, at the end of the summer to help us process the hemp by hand, and people in Colorado, too. So um, I guess that will be on our website and Facebook page. We look forward to collaborating with more volunteers. Thanks, Severin. Thank you, and so everyone just join all the mailing lists and show up in Kentucky for the crop mob of the. It's funny we call it industrial hemp. I would love to, I would love to call it cottage hemp, or um, <laughs> yes. something of that sort. Thank you, but cottage hemp. I think we've just retitled it. <laughs> so to the future, uh, the future of new crops on the land and more new fiber growers out there. Stay in touch and let us know how it goes. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.